Hi, friends, and welcome to a long, long, long overdue episode of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I am here with Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hey, everyone. And Derek Silva. Hi, Derek. Hey. So you're not going to hear much from us today, um, and I'm going to explain why in a moment, but we are going to talk a little bit off the top. Um, but before I get into the very serious subject matter of this episode, um, I, maybe just a couple of notes about the show in general, because you haven't heard from us in a long time, and that's not due to anything um, fundamentally significant on any of our ends, but just that we had um, really busy semesters in the fall that made it difficult for us to record, and so we were taking a little bit of a break after being much more consistent during the summer. Uh, but now... We are back in earnest and intending to release episodes on the regular, hopefully weekly, for the foreseeable indefinite future. And who knows how long that lasts? You know, we, I don't want to make promises. I can't keep it. But we're planning. We've got many recordings already scheduled. Um, we've made some recordings already, and we plan to do more. So uh, it seems like hopefully for most of this semester, at least, um, we'll be able to keep um, the new audio content available for you. Now. Because we have not been recording, that also means that we have really not spoken at all publicly through the venue of this podcast about the events in um, Palestine since October 7th. And it's incredibly important to us that the first episode we return with here on the end of sport is one that addresses this subject directly because the last thing we want to do is evade it as far as we're mm -hmm. concerned really there's nothing more significant to be speaking about um and uh again the last thing we want to do is, is evade that we want to we want to kind of express to you where we are positioned on this topic um as directly as possible and we're going to do that in a moment but I, will, I do want to say by way of introduction that what this episode will be today is a recording of a conversation conducted through UConn, the University of Connecticut, titled Complicity and Solidarity, Sport, Higher Education, and Palestine-Israel. Um, and we are incredibly fortunate that the organizers of that event were willing to share this with us and to share it on End of Sport. Um, and that conversation is going to speak for itself. So what you will hear today is that recording, uh, pretty much in its entirety. Um, and we're excited to share that with you. I think that's a great note for us to start with, a very serious conversation from people who have thought very seriously about this crucially important topic. What we're going to do in the, the remainder of the introduction here, however, is just to share a few of our own reflections. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I should also say that we have uh, also scheduled an upcoming episode on this issue of Palestine, Gaza, and sport directly. Mm -hmm. That will be a more traditional end of sport podcast episode, um, but we don't have that one uh, recorded yet, so that's why we're not leading with it. We're leading with this one. So what I want to start by saying is, um, and, and I'm going to position myself directly here because... Um, I think it's important in terms of how I feel about this issue and what I think about it. It does relate to my own experience, my family's experiences. Um, I am the descendant of Holocaust survivors. And that means that the, idea, the, the history of genocide, genocidal violence, uh, anti-Semitism, 
is something that, you know, I take incredibly seriously. It is indeed formative to me, to other members of my family. And the way I have always understood the concept of never again um, is that it does not apply to any one specific population. It's a universal kind of imperative that genocidal violence should never be tolerated in any context, again, under any circumstances. And for me, the circumstances that we have seen following October 7th with the um, unbelievably uh, relentless bombing of Gaza by the government of Israel, uh, the declarations by Israeli politicians, the denial of access to food, water, health care to those living in Gaza, the demand that those living in Gaza relocate um, if they want to survive. All of these events have the hallmarks of genocide. Um, mm -hmm. I felt confident saying that shortly after October 7th, quite frankly, and you know, we, I'm on the editorial board now of the NB Media Co-op, and we published an editorial um, on October 16th, I believe it was, that said that what we were looking at was genocide already. And it has only worsened um, by many magnitudes since that point. And now, even more recently, we have confirmation from the um, International Court of Justice who listened to South Africa's case that indeed a genocide is being perpetrated by Israel in Gaza. And the court has found that indeed there are very serious grounds um, to, to understand this as genocide and they will, they will hear the case more fully. And there's a, now a demand that, that no acts that could be possibly construed as genocide occur um, in the coming months. And then immediately after that ruling came down, we learned that the United States and Canada and the U European Union are withdrawing funding from the UN um, RWA, the organization that has been doing the most of any to provide life-saving aid in Gaza. Um, it's difficult for me to put into words how disgusted I am um, at the complicity of my own Canadian government mm -hmm. in this genocide. I think complicity is actually not strong enough a word when yeah. we're thinking about arms dealing, when we're thinking about um, now refusing to provide aid, when we're thinking about basically gaslighting the ICJ, basically saying that the ICJ, uh, the International Court of Justice, uh, is not the legitimate arbiter of this issue um, because they're not saying what the Canadian government wants them to say. Uh, it's, it's, it leaves me almost speechless, but certainly it leaves me with a tremendous certainty that although we, have all, we should have all known already that states founded on colonial violence that refuse mm -hmm. to acknowledge the property rights of Indigenous people, despite the fact that in Canadian law, significant swaths of Canada belong to Indigenous yep. people today, yep. of course there's no moral authority to the Canadian government, to the Canadian state, to the U.S. government, and so forth. But these events have absolutely underlined that point to the extent that um, I just feel 
profound shame and horror um, at my own position of complicity in this world system. Um, and my heart breaks for all of those who have been subjected to this trauma um, in Palestine. Yeah, and if I could just add um, a couple things, like obviously on, I agree with everything that Nathan is saying about this genocide. There, There's a couple things that I'd like to just briefly talk about in terms of my own um, past and my own work. Um, I've been, uh, I've been known as a sort of terrorism scholar. Um, and this thing, this so-called, uh, notion of terrorism has been thrown around. Uh, and I have been staunchly critical in approaches to, or government responses to so-called terrorism very much because they inevitably lead to genocidal artifacts. And, and that's kind of what we're seeing right here. Um, and I, I just like to get on the record for the show that no act of violence, um, of, of so-called terrorism, um, single kind of act that we saw justifies the bombing of hospitals, the, um, mass forced exodus of people from their homeland, the relentless, relentless bombing of, um, of streets, of houses, of schools, of universities, it simply does not exist. And that's the problem when we start talking about things through the lens of terrorism, that when it's said to be such, you can justify almost anything. And we're really seeing that in this particular context. And and one of the things that I, I wanted to briefly mention is that we often in this space and in spaces in higher education, we talk about decolonization and we talk about the, the emergence, the evolution, the change of settler colonialism in various forms. And we talk about the answer to that as being this, this catchphrase kind of decolonization. We need to really heed the warning of Tuck and Yang here and not use decolonization as a metaphor, not, not in, engage in settler moves to innocence that disconnect or at least distract um, or sidestep the question of the repatriation of indigenous land and life. This is a moment in history where we need to not treat decolonization as a metaphor and think about the solution as being repatriation of indigenous land and life. And to all the folks who are out there every weekend, every week, seemingly across the streets of what seems to be the entire world. Um, we on this show are with you. We are standing there in solidarity. We are out on those streets as well. We are projecting and amplifying the voices that we need to. So, so we would, I, I think we can all agree that we stand in solidarity um, with you and the work that you're doing. As a historian, as someone who teaches like world and global history, I think it just becomes very clear. It just has become very clear to me over the last, you know, couple of years in teaching these histories and also being part of the podcast and, you know, learning a lot from other scholars online. It's just like when you compare, when you look at global colonialism and you compare colonialism, settler colonialism across time and space and look at the tactics of genocide that have been passed from basically empire to empire and how they've been approved upon 
I think the one of the hesitations that coming as someone who was trained as a Europeanist, as a Central Europeanist, one of the things that my field really gets stuck on is like, well, genocide is only specific to like Nazism and and very like concrete, you know, very limited cases. And again, as someone who studies these things across time and space, like Southern colonial empires, they changed their tactics of genocide to evade categorization and identification, right? In, in order to evade people being able to identify it specifically as genocide, right? So I think we're, we're, we're buying into, you know, Nazi logic. We're buying into genocidal logic of deflecting, of, of avoiding, you know, identification and, and, and complicity. Um, so anyways, I just, I think it becomes really clear when you take a step back and you analyze these histories across time and space and look at the contemporary landscape and you can see what is happening as being an act of genocide in an asymmetrical war. As someone uh, very close to me has like explained to me time and time again, this is an asymmetrical war, right? These two sides are absolutely not equal and they never have been. Um, and again, coming from the U.S., which is a sort of colonial society, we are a police state who benefits significantly from Israeli police training. This, you know, the the the, the sale of, of guns and actual like training of force against Black and Brown people in our own communities in the U.S. I think it becomes very clear what's going on. Obviously, the U.S. is directly complicit in what's going on. Absolutely, and I, and I just want to say also, you know, as explicitly as possible, um, that. I have been disgusted with the way this has been decades in the making, but just disgusted with the way in which this the concept of anti-Semitism has been mm-hmm. deployed and weaponized to silence those who um, feel solidarity with people being subjected to genocidal violence and displacement. And quite frankly, as a Jewish person myself, uh, I find it despicable um, that Israel would lay claim to the definition of what it means to be Jewish to the extent that it becomes impossible even for Jewish people to speak critically of Israel and Israeli violence without being dubbed anti-Semites and without, as the Jerusalem Post did, disowning people as Jews, actually saying you are no longer Jewish if you do not stand with Israel in this moment. I think that that's that's I use that example because it's the perfect example to show that actually what is anti what is anti-Semitic in this moment is the claim what is and is not Jewish what counts as Jewish and does not count as Jewish to stake out that claim is the most anti-Semitic thing one could possibly do, um, and and that is exactly what we have seen as part of this project to justify genocidal violence. But um, I think the way I was taught to understand my own history of Judaism. One of the, the, the thing that resonates most with me about what matters about being Jewish is solidarity with those who are experiencing oppression, with understanding a history of violence and brutality and, and the fact that that means being able to recognize it in the world when it appears anew. Um, that's so much at the heart of what being Jewish means and has always meant to me. And it has given me the tools to understand a moment like the moment we're confronted with, even when the people responsible are dressing themselves up in the kind of banner of Judaism. Um, so I, I think that's really important to kind of to put that on the table. Yeah, I, I thank you for doing that. And, and I think that that provides, I think, uh, a statement on our own positionality enough um, to, to get 
to throw to the episode. Um, so uh, without further ado, please um, enjoy or at least learn something from this episode, this wonderful panel um, on complicity and solidarity, sport, higher education, um, and Israel and Palestine, Israel. So welcome everybody. Um, my name is Chen Chen. I'm a system professor at the University of Connecticut, uh, working in the sport management program. And uh, I acknowledge that I'm speaking from the occupied Mohegan, Pequot, and Lenape land, and uh, in an institution that um, was built on settler colonial uh, land and uh, that first came up with its land acknowledgement as recently as 2019. And I think it's very important to acknowledge, as Stephen Salata mentioned, how do we be in solidarity with people under occupation when we ourselves are in occupied territories? So um, I guess it's, it's, it's worthwhile for us to go through some numbers. We know that everybody has been inundated with numbers, but I think uh, it's still important to reiterate, lest we forget, uh, as of January 19th, uh, according to Euro Mediterranean Human Rights Monitor, um, the death toll uh, in the Gaza Strip has surged to more than 32,000 people, including 12,000 children. This number, of course, includes those presumed dead under the rubble. At least 100 journalists have been killed. All 36 hospitals in Gaza have been destroyed. 390 schools and educational institutions, including all universities, have been destroyed. These schools also include 65 schools affiliated with the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Refugees. 368 students have been killed, while almost 8,000 more have been injured since. 231 teachers have been killed, with more than 750 injured. According to CNN yesterday, there are also 16 cemeteries were damaged. Numbers, we hear those numbers. Here, I think I want to mention this quote by Black revolutionary Asata Shakur. Nobody in the world, nobody in history has ever gotten their freedom by appealing to the moral sense of the people who were oppressing them. We are here as educators, scholars, encouraged and inspired by obviously Palestinian people, Palestinian student organizations, but also importantly, millions of Jewish brothers and sisters who put their body on the line, having their voice heard across cities in the Western world to call for a ceasefire demanding, quote, not in our name. I want to also share that 
the late Bernie Steinberg, who served as a director of the Harvard Hillel, who wrote his last piece in public platform in December titled For the Safety of Jews and Palestinians, Stop Weaponizing Anti-Semitism. I also wanted to mention Tariq Habash, a senior official at the Department of Education, in his resignation letter to the Secretary of Education of the United States, Mr. Miguel Cardona, by the way, is a proud alumnus of the institution I'm working at. Tariq Habash, the former senior official at the Department of Education, said in, in his resignation letter, he, quote, cannot represent an administration that does not value all human life equally. We're all sports scholars, sports fans, and we also recognize the suppression of voices in solidarity with Palestine and call for ceasefire within the sport industry. For example, we can obviously recall uh, what journalist Dave Zirin has written in November and in a piece to the nation titled, There is no space in the sports world to call for a free Palestine. I think it's important for us to uh, come together and reckon why that is the case. So here today, uh, we invited uh, a few scholars to come together to talk about issues related to you know, practicing solidarity in the context of sport and education in light of the current event in Palestine, Israel. Um, the speakers include Dr. Daniel Silovsky, Assistant Professor at University of Toronto, Canada, Dr. Artie Ratna, Northumbria University, UK, Associate Professor, Dr. Nicola Demartini Ugolotti, Senior Lecturer at Bournemouth University, UK, Dr. Munene Mwaniki, Associate Professor at Western Carolina University, and Dr. Anima Ajipong, Associate Professor at University of Cincinnati. Um, I guess to start a conversation, my first question to everyone is, how have you come to be educated about Israel-Palestine? How are you personally connected to Israel-Palestine? Or, you know, what kind of connections have you made between the issue or conflict in Palestine-Israel and the struggle of, quote-unquote, your community? And lastly, what does solidarity mean or look like when it comes to your community with the ongoing violence against the Palestinians. Whoever is comfortable can go first. Uh, I can start if, uh, if that's okay. As I told uh, Chen before we started here, I, I feel a little bit uncertainty with starting only because um, in terms of my own familial connections to Gaza, to Palestine, to Israel, they're not they're not super significant. Um, I'm not in terms of uh, closeness to harm. I'm not the closest to harm. However, I uh, feel quite intimately connected to this 
conflict as a Jewish person, not just as a Jewish person, but as a Jewish person who grew up in extremely, for lack of a better term, extremely Zionist kind of um, surroundings and education, stemming from my education in Jewish day schools that were explicitly Zionist. My grandfather founded a Zionist summer camp in Montreal. Um, everyone in my family is uh, pretty ardently Zionist. My friends that I grew up with uh, as well, pretty ardently Zionist. And so this is the, the background that I came to. And it took me a lot of time, longer than I would um, like to admit to most people, to unlearn a lot of the uh, Zionist teachings, the perspectives, the misleading and outright false information that I was taught growing up and, and throughout even my teenage years. So that's the kind of closeness that I have and the personal connections that I have to Israel and to Palestine. I've been to Israel five times. Um, I'm only 30 years old. I've been to Israel five times for family trips. My parents, my sister and my cousin were educated there um, in terms of going to American medical schools uh, in Israel. And like I said, it took me a lot of time to unlearn a lot of what I had learned um, about Israel and about Palestine specifically. And in terms of my connection to the the conflict and to the ongoing genocide right now, this unlearning really only happened once I was able to get outside of my community a bit more and starting in university, uh, especially during my graduate and then PhD years, speaking with people of Palestinian descent, speaking with people who are more well-versed in anti-imperialist literature, and then reading, reading scholars like Khalidi and Said and Pape, and really unlearning, like I said, a lot of um, what I've learned. And, and because of this sort of evolution that I've undergone, and because of the way that, as Chen noted, the way that anti-Semitism uh, has been weaponized, and um, the way that people are misled about anti-Semitism and about anti-Zionism, and the way that Israel is decontextualized so often from its violent history and it's from its explicitly violent colonial goals, I feel a strong responsibility as a former Zionist and as a Jewish person to try to educate other indoctrinated Zionists because I have been in that perspective. I know that perspective. I know the arguments. I know the counter arguments that they make. And I want to also, I feel a responsibility to demonstrate to the wider world that we are, we as anti-Zionist Jews, we exist. Not only do we exist, but we always have existed since the earliest times of Zionism, since the late 1800s, since the early 1900s, we've always existed. And because of that, I, I do feel a connection with my community, but it's not a connection that is necessarily uh, one of solidarity. My, my community is largely um, not completely responsible, of course, but uh, has, a, has had a role in sanitizing and in spreading lots of Zionist propaganda, for lack of a better term, that has been used for the perpetuation and the justification of the ongoing genocide. So there's this com complicity that my community has and that I still feel. And, and because of that, and because of just the learning that I've undergone, uh, I do feel this, this res moral responsibility to engage. And that's, that's why I'm here today. So thanks. Shall I go next? Hi, everybody. It's, I'm Artie Ratner. Um, I feel very nervous about speaking. Um, also because, you know, the fact it's quite hard to speak out on this topic at this moment, but I don't feel like I'm also the most educated person around the history of the conflict. Um, 
between the Palestinians and Israel. But, you know, I've, I want to explain how I've come to this topic um, in response to Chen's question. And as somebody who's grown up in the UK, you know, I lived alongside Wembley Stadium, which is the home of um, our national sport in the UK, football. In other parts of the world, it's known as soccer. And, you know, the people that I shared this neighbourhood space with were an array of different communities, including an established Jewish community who had been there since the 60s, um, Pakistani communities, Bangladeshi communities, Indian communities, um, and Afro-Caribbean communities. And so I grew up with an array of friends and we all knew that they were religious and cultural differences between us. And I don't start with that comment to kind of um, prevent me from seeing my own prejudice just because I've got friends who are different to me. But actually, I know that even though I've grown up in this multicultural community, I'm not even sure of my own prejudices to start with. So I always want to try and think reflexively about the things that I think and where they come from. And so, you know, growing up in this space, we didn't have education on the history of the conflict. So a lot of it came to me through the media and through ongoing campaigns. Um, and, you know, I guess my own history as a South Asian person whose heritage stems from India, I think about the Indian context quite a lot, particularly as India is also formerly colonised state by British Empire and the pain that that's caused for people in my family, you know, because of British rule drawing a line between people who share lands. So my family are from Gujarat, which is in the northwest um, state of India, and it's on the border with Pakistan. And this drawing of a line through this desert landscape separated communities that had always lived alongside each other. And, you know, the political tensions are so fraught alongside this borderland. And I just find it so sad because these people are connected by their labour, by their class, their caste, even if they're differentiated by their religious affiliations. And I really think about 2001 because the state prime minister at the time, and I don't like saying his name, I call him the silent assassin. You know, he denied knowledge of the killing of Muslim communities in 2001 on a three day killing spree. And a lot of the Hindu communities at the time stayed silent. And I just felt the pain of this because, you know, it can't be tit for tat. You know, just because a Hindu community might have done something doesn't give you the right to, you know, commit genocide. And um, I think what was more painful was the denial that this was happening initially, but then the interpretive sleight of hand um, that they deserved it. And so when I think about the pain that's going on in Israel, Gaza, I sort of see this political tit for tat going on, this denial and this interpretive sleight of hand. And um, I just think, you know, it separates us seeing what connects us. And when I think back to my childhood and the anti-Semitism and Islamophobia felt by people that I grew up with and how that has continued to impact their daily lives, I think about the pain that they share. And so, you know, when I practice solidarity, it's for marginalised communities, it's those who are victims persecuted for reasons other than, you know, um, reasons outside of their own control. And so, you know, I think 
I want to go back to a time where I can think about how, you know, we try and transcend these divides in and through the practice of solidarity. And that for me has been taking my own children to rallies and events in my local community um, to think about, you know, how we support others whose politics might not be our own, whose lives not might be similar to ours, but how we can speak for those who are oppressed and experience that pain. I'll, I'll go next. Um, thank you. Thank you, Chen, for gathering us. And um, thank you to everyone who's here to participate in this conversation. Um, in response to the question, I want to locate myself as an African and a queer person and an anti-colonial thinker. Um, I, I think, I, I hope that as I speak, this will, you know, that kind of location will will help contextualize what, what I say. But um, I want to begin by saying that as a young person, I grew up attending an evangelical church. I'm from Ghana, and um, we call these churches charismatic. Um, they're these new Pentecostal churches where people speak in tongues, they catch the spirit. Um, you know, when you go to church, the music, the sound system is really good. So if you've ever seen like Joel Osteen on TV or something like that, like think that um, meets the quintessential Black American church. But in church, there was an expressed desire for Israel, um, which was represented in modern times by dis a displaced Jewish diaspora to make their way back to the quote-unquote promised land. And while this message was not always explicit, especially in the 1990s when I was growing up during the U.S. Gulf War, we were often returned to this theme to pray for the eventual establishment of the biblical Israel. Now, why did Christians care about this? For Christians, it was about the second coming of their Messiah, of Jesus Christ. And the war and the violence in the region was a necessary step towards the fulfillment of that promise. And I, I don't know if this is still the case amongst um, Christian communities, but the anticipation of the second coming of Christ served as a justification for violence. Um, and so there was this kind of connection between the Israeli nation, um, the rapture and the end of the world. And for that reason, the Christians and the churches that I, I was going to were very invested in this war. Um, at the same time, I'm growing up in at a time when daily I'm hearing news about war in Liberia about war in Ethiopia, Eritrea, about Rwanda, which um, ended in an attempted genocide, um, about the ongoing struggle for an end to occupation in Namibia, and about um, anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. So this is kind of the context in which I am a young person growing up. And, and I want to note um, that it took four years following the end of the attempted genocide in Rwanda for the U.S. president to acknowledge that um, that's what was going on. And we're seeing this right now. It's it's kind of very wild to me to kind of cast my mind back and then look at where we are in the present moment. But for me, these wars and political struggles occurring, these African um, conflicts, right, uh, Ethiopia, Namibia, South Africa, et cetera, occurring against the backdrop of the U.S. Gulf War, politicized me. There was something going on in the media um, where the kind of narrative that was presented about the Gulf War was so wildly different 
from how I was hearing, and it was the same, it was CNN, <laughs> it was CNN and the BBC, but it was so wildly different from how they were reporting on Liberia, Rwanda, Ethiopia, and even South Africa. And from that reporting, one of the things that I really had a hard time making sense of as a young person was how the U.S. was positioned as a savior that was rightfully defending Israel um, and its right to exist. It was, I, I couldn't kind of um, bring that together with this world police that the U.S. was making no interventions um, into Ethiopia, where every day on the six o'clock news, I saw um, starving children, like every single day, making no interventions into Rwanda, um, making no interventions into Liberia, where there was a large refugee population in Ghana, like Liberian refugees lived with my extended family. Um, making no real interventions into the apartheid in South Africa. So it seemed to me like maybe this world police was not such, <laughs> was not doing the work that I was being told they were doing. And in that moment, I started to make these connections um, between, um, you know, the, the, the kind of the violence that was being experienced by African peoples and what I would later come to understand as colonialism in in the middle east i hadn't you know i understood that africans were colonized peoples and we're still fighting against colonialism and we're still um you know like in 1992 ghana had its first democratic election um after and it was a result of structural adjustments there were all these kinds of capitalist deals that were made in order to sustain the nation and so as I continued to learn more, um, what I came to realize and what I what I firmly stand by is that, um, you know, we cannot understand the ongoing colonialism in Palestine and the attempt at genocide without understanding these issues in Africa, without thinking about Tigray and thinking about. Um, about even even without thinking about Hindu nationalism, right? Like all of these things are so intimately connected that it it really becomes necessary to think about these structures. Um, and this doesn't mean that like a person cannot focus on an issue because this is really, really important. I think we're in this moment where folks are like, oh, well, you can't talk about one thing and not the other. Well, no, like we have limited resources and everyone has the particular position that they're coming from. So for me, kind of my um, uh, connection to this is not only the background that I come from through the evangelical church and its kind of commitment to violence in this particular way, but also to kind of highlight the reality that these are issues that are um, about settler colonialism, about um, capitalist extravagance, and about um, racial injustice and apartheid. Like all of this is happening there. And if we take a position on one, we have to be able to recognize the connections that they have across these different um, layers and geographical areas as well. Um, I can jump jump in if, if that's fine. Uh, I am, I think just because I, I felt like um, I can go right back what Amina said. And it's important to say how my my location is quite different from uh, all of yours location here. 
Um, growing up in Italy, that's where I'm coming from, uh, in a family and social environment with no direct link with Palestine, Israel, or the region. Uh, the first thing that, I, that, that your question made me think about is how I, I have absorbed a uh, discussion about Israel and Palestine through different sites, uh, school, news media, movies. Uh, back then, Delta Force was really a hit among young kids like me. And how I have absorbed uh, perspectives on this issue uh, through these perspectives that combine what Ilan Bappé summarizes the myths about Israel as the land without people for a people without land, combined with Orientalist tropes about Palestinian people as almost naturally prone to violence. And uh, it was uh, not until I engaged with social movements in my late teens that I was able to access different perspectives. So that was my kind of inherited background of how me, as many other young people in Italy, kind of absorbed um, a position on the issue. I reproduced it. But it was only when I started to work as a clinical psychologist and activist uh, with un undocumented migrants and refugees in Italy from the early 2000s that um, it became clear by working uh, with people from different backgrounds, different migratory journeys, different ages, how for them uh, the, the issue of Palestine and Israel was an intimate, an intimate issue was something very familiar. It was something that resonated with the history of their countries of origin, that resonated with their personal experiences, that resonated with the reasons that compelled them to live and reach Europe or Italy. So one of the first things that uh, having these, these encounters, the relationship taught me, was actually that question that you were posing today. What is your connection to the issue of Israel and Palestine? What, and what is your position? And uh, what these encounters and, and working relationship helped me to understand that Palestine and Israel are not something that is happening out there. As Amina said, is something that is disengaged from lives in uh, North America or in Western Europe or, or, or in Africa or in other contexts. But it's something that really is one of the most emblematic present day manifestation of the materialization of colonial hierarchies and violences. And these resonate deeply across places, across histories and across bodies and make and reveal these connections. So, uh, so there was really one really kind of turning point in my, in my experience in my, my relationship with the topic because, and this was made clear by Angela Davis, how in Palestine is showing the connections between different struggles across different places. Um, but I guess in my own research that is on how leisure and physical culture intersect with the politics of migration, the necropolitics of migration, and the politics of solidarity, how it intersects with its experiences and practices of racialized youth in urban contexts in, in Europe and South America. This was a reminder that how can we connect these issues? Because again, as Anima was putting beautifully from her own experiences, they are connected. Um, and I guess that kind of, um, that kind of also underpin my idea of doing a research that is about 
not just doing critical academic work, but how is research part of the reclaiming of everyday life or what we call the universal right to breathe for those who are exposed every day to, um, to extreme political violence, either slow or intense, as we are seeing today. So what is our role as researchers or sport, physical culture, leisure, you name it, in making visible, in amplifying these processes of uh, reappropriation and these processes of violence? And I guess that is why I, I really found Hilary Kipnis' work uh, Hilary spoke in the last panel, so relevant because she, um, she in talking about the experiences of Palestinian sport women in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, she, she engaged with the work of Palestinian feminist scholar Nadira Shaluk Kivorkian. Now I'm mentioning this because Shaluk Kivorkian's recent work is about the processes of unchilding, unchilding of Palestinian youth by colonial frames in and beyond Israel. And she focuses on the role of outdoor play as a domain, as a very dangerous site um, of contestation of this unchilding. And it's something that uh, kind of is a site of this ongoing processes of contestation. And then again, to think about resonances, connections and continuum, the work of Shalub Kevorkian makes me think about the work of Fikil and Zumalo on decolonizing place in uh, early childhood education. And that's because it's about acknowledging the continuum of processes of subjugation that reverberates across places, histories and bodies, and how us as sports scholars, as uh, scholars of physical culture, have, have a role in this discussion about unpacking, making visible, talking about these issues in solidarity with the communities we work with. So, yeah, that's me. And I guess I'm the last one to go here. Um, I'll try to be be brief so we can uh, move on to some other questions that I know Chen has. Um, you know, I came to this question of, of the Palestinian struggle, you know, I think in part, I was even thinking in, in preparation for this, you know, I'm, I'm not too sure. It seems like it's just always been a part of, you know, how I how I grew up politically. Um, and I think like many of my colleagues here, you know, it's, uh, you know, deeply personal. Uh, you know, I don't personally have a have a connection, but it's certainly intertwined with the whole history of imperialism and colonialism, you know, that I think have touched uh, so many of our lives. Um, from my end, you know, my father grew up in Kenya in 1949, right before the British declared a colonial emergency against the Kenya Land and Freedom Army or the Mau Mau. Uh, and so, you know, I grew up hearing those stories of forced militarization, forced labor, which my grandmother was a part of, the concentration camps, detention camps that my, my grandfather was in. Um, and so, you know, I grew up, you know, with this kind of, uh, you know, pan-African anti-colonial uh, outlook. And then, of course, you know, for myself growing up black in the United States, you just can't help but to begin kind of putting all these different struggles together. And even though they're different, seeing a lot of the similarities uh, between them. Uh, certainly, as I you know, got into academia, uh, began understanding some of these problems a little bit more. You know, but, uh, you know, I think as we'll talk about later, you know, academia certainly has its own uh, limitations. And so I think even over the past, you know, five, six, seven years, 
um, you know, a lot of what I've gained is, you know, from, you know, radical revolutionary theorists um, and writers who are, you know, largely outside of academia uh, and outside of, of academic training. Um, and I, I think it's important, um, you know, even going forward that we sort of recover <laughs> some of those, uh, those more radical thinkers. Um, but overall, you know, I, you know, I think that the struggle of the Palestinians and having solidarity with them is a is a fundamental part of the international struggle against U.S. imperialism and certainly for the forces of of decolonization. Uh, and so, even in my own uh, politicization or radicalization, if you want to call it that, you know, understanding how various organizations or individuals, whether it's the Black Panthers or Nelson Mandela, Fidel Castro, my father was a huge fan of Castro and, and what the Cuban people did for, for various African struggles. Um, you know, just sort of led me to the conclusion uh, that, uh, you know, their struggle is mine uh, and that solidarity is sort of a, a natural outcome of that. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, more, Locally, in terms of uh, solidarity, you know, I, I think it's been heartening to see certainly all the protests, you know, around the United States. I think what was it like four hundred thousand people in in D.C. Um, you know, just last weekend or so, uh, or the weekend before that. But even where I'm at, you know, small rural town, uh, North Carolina, you, know, you have you know different organizations that are you're trying to do that work of making these links between larger U.S. imperialism and how that oftentimes boomerangs back to us in the form of militarization of the police. Uh, and certainly the immense amount of resources that flow outside of the United States, um, you know, as well, and the impact that that has on, on the, the lives of, of everyday folk. Um, and so, you know, it, for me, uh, you know, for my students, um, you know, I try to get them to recognize uh, you know, that the that the work is being done, you might, you know, the media might not necessarily cover it, um, you know, but there are a lot of interested people uh, in, you know, making these links and bringing, you know, some of these larger issues down to local levels. It's going, going to slow, of course, but, uh, you know, I think that it's important work to be done. Thank you, everybody, um, for, you know, for sharing that personal connection and perspective. And we do have a, have a few folks Typing in some comments, but as Dan mentioned, we'll have a Q&A period at the end of the conversation. Um, for now, I think following what Munene, you have, you know, eloquently described and your, your, your focus on, you know, uh, higher ed education institutions. Um, we're all working in, we're all situated in. Uh, my next question will be about University, anti-racism, diversity, equity, inclusion in the context of the ongoing genocide and, you know, destruction of the education institutions in Gaza. And we also can't forget, you know, the recent controversy associated with the recent resignation of Harvard University President Claudine Gay when it comes to, you know, her reaction to uh to some so-called anti-Semitic uh, 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 groups or uh, voices on campus. So I want to ask each of you, as an academic, as an educator, you know, being situated in this current moment, uh, what are your reactions to that? What does that tell you about 
you know, academia, higher education, and its commitment to quote unquote social justice. Shall I just speak again, just because um, I want to just say I've got video problems, so I hope that everyone can hear me clearly at least. Um, so at Northumbria University last summer, we have a partnership with the Islamic University of Gaza, and we were doing project work with them, which was working with women from the university around how we support the inclusion, representation and progression of women through um, STEM subjects, so science, technology, engineering and mathematics. And it was it was a really amazing event where our students and staff members were joining in this dialogue with women from the Islamic University of Gaza. And we were having such great conversations about the things that connected our stories and the things we needed in higher education and further education to support our journeys. And, you know, it was really powerful. And then literally four months later, you know, this sort of dialogue we started felt more important than ever before and it was just so sad because so many of the women had gone back to Palestine bar one woman who had travelled up to Scotland and so we decided to start our own um, sort of activist group across the university and we didn't have permission and I wonder if we sought permission whether it would have been granted but you know, because we were we had the community with us, we felt we had to do something. It was our responsibility to organise on the ground. And so what we did is we started to hold weekly meetings, um, online communications, and we started to plan from the ground up what our actions should be and what this should look like. And at no point, I have to say, did, as I said, we had permission for to do any of this. Anyway, um, when we reached out to those higher up in our institution, you know, we had support to a certain extent and we had um, support for resources to be put into place for our student and staff members who might have been feeling secondhand trauma from the images that we were seeing because this the violence was happening in real time. You know, and we had students who had connections to both Israel and to Palestine and their experiences of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia was also rife. So we wanted to make sure how do we practice care with our communities in the classroom, but through the university more broadly. But it became quite sad because the university's response became one of reminding us that any time we spoke about Gaza, it was almost suggesting we had to be careful because it could be anti-Semitic. And it was just a worrying, worrying trend that what we were seeing in real time was then being denied as a way to give us a way to express our hurt from the violence we were seeing in Gaza and, and the, you know, the, the masses and masses of deaths that were, you know, being videoed to us. And for us, we sometimes had um, groups um, who, when they had technology, when there wasn't a blackout in Gaza, so we were having phone calls where people were telling us that they were huddled in their family spaces and sometimes the jokes that were occurring between them despite living in this really, really horrendous moment and we were listening to their voices on a call in real time and, you know, the pain and the trauma, it's just been awful and I just feel so saddened right now because every time we want to speak, even through our union, 
it just feels like we can't we can't even begin to voice our hurt without being accused of being anti-Semitic when actually our solidarity lies across with both communities who are being harmed through this, you know, war, um, this act of genocide. You know, both communities are being harmed. I just want to reiterate that. Um, the other thing we've done is we've called on our union to boycott um, an organisation that's an aeronautical organisation who are also making weapons of war that are being supplied to Israel. And we've asked for that to happen. And, you know, we're trying to ask for these in real time, but sometimes they just get kicked up further down some sort of communication chain and nothing is happening. Um, even being here actually feels frightening for me in case anyone finds out. <laughs> I just it's just really hard to speak in this academic moment and one of the things I keep saying is you know who has academic freedom and who has the right to speak and I come back to Audrey I'm scared but I'm still speaking uh, I would like to echo um, what RT said specifically about the the fear, honestly, that comes with speaking out about this issue. Uh, full disclosure, I am a contractually limited the CLTA. I'm a contractually limited teaching appointment. I have a two-year contract. I have no real job security. I mean, I have still have a, a job, an academic job, a platform, and uh, I'm happy to do that. And it is scary, though. Um, at the same time, it, it's a vital moment, not just because, to be frank, what's going on in Gaza and Palestine is more important than anything I will teach in my classes. But more than that, it's also intimately connected to what I am teaching in my classes. So I teach about harm. I teach about violence in the sport context. And with that, I also teach about some of those processes, things like some of the processes that result in this harm, focusing on capitalism and imperialism and colonialism. And it's really important. And I think that we are very guilty of this in Western academia and as Western academics of speaking about imperialism and colonialism, like they are things that happened, ended, and now that we're moved past this. And that is just a fundamental misunderstanding of the process of colonialism and the process of imperialism. And it doesn't do justice to the harms still being felt now. And that's not including only when there is, we are in wartime, but it's expected especially acute and obvious during times of war and of ethnic cleansing, like we're seeing right now. But it's really vital that we situate what's going on here within the political historical context, within as a part, as an ongoing part of this process of colonialism, dispossession and ethnic cleansing. And because of that, I do think we have a responsibility as academics, not just because we are educators and because we have a platform to speak with students who are in a fundamental kind of time in their life where they're learning and they're questioning and they're moving beyond kind of the simplistic understandings that we that maybe they grew up with not just that but again to to hammer home the point that colonialism and imperialism are ongoing processes and that they're they haven't ended and that we need to actually draw attention we cannot be the western academics who speak about a conflict, a genocide, a uh, crimes against humanity 20 years after the fact and write about, you know, um, memorials and in memoriams. And we write about, you know, the, the recovery from this horrific act without talking about when it's happening in the here and now.
Yeah, I wanna I wanna jump in here um, and register my distress about what's going on in the chat, um, which is an attempt to detracts from the conversation. I think it's actually really relevant to what we're trying to what we're talking about right now in terms of academic freedom and in terms of practicing solidarity and intellectual honesty. Um, you know, right now there are questions of both sidesism going on in the chat. There are these concerns of well you're not really saying X, Y, or Z. And it's almost like it doesn't matter um, how much folks are contextualizing, calling attention to the power structure as it exists, um, tells us that we have to be silent, right? That we have to only speak according to the terms that are legible and legitimate to the oppressor. And that's happening literally right now as we're trying to have this conversation about solidarity, about um, academic freedom, et cetera. So I just want to kind of highlight that just to begin with. Um, and to also say that, you know, this question, you know, kind of the the news about the destruction of the universities in Gaza, um, it it really just feels like this extension of what's of what's happening, right? Like where right now, um, academia is under assault. Even as academia is also siding with um, systems of power and oppression, academia is under assault here in the U.S. Um, I'm in Ohio, where the um, the state keeps trying to make this law that says we can't teach anything. Um, that's this, the thing that they tried to do in, in Florida, if folks know about the Don't Say Gay Bill. And so there's these kind of like ideological attacks and also the attacks on the physical building that kind of help us see how how these connections are taking place. I am heartened. I really appreciate um, what you shared, RT, and I'm heartened by the the fact that even as these things are happening, we're also here gathered as scholars, um, kind of in 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 community in, in solidarity. We might get punished. Um, this is a this is a reality of speaking out on this issue right now. Is that there are consequences for doing that in a way that there are not consequences for answering the questions that. Gil, Fried, and whoever are putting in the chat. And, and I just kind of want to make that explicit because there are constant attacks and assaults to silence those who are taking progressive positions on this attempt at genocide. And we are, if, if we cannot speak directly to it, then how are we supposed to kind of navigate the, not just the intellectual, but also the physical assault that's happening? So I just kind of want to make that explicit. Uh, to be honest, I feel like uh, everything basically has been has been said already. That the, the key points have been said. To me, uh, it feels like just adding some contextual information again by teasing out how uh, these processes are happening uh, across context. You mentioned Chen, the the resignation of the Harvard University president in the UK. We had this we had this issue when uh, the, the Minister of uh, Science and Innovation directly intervened when um, one of the um, one of the director of a newly created DEI uh, committee into for the UKRI, so the, the National Scientific uh, Governing Body, 
as a reply to a, key, to a tweet um, by the Home Secretary describing basically a demonstration in support of Palestinian as of Palestinian lives as supporting Hamas. So and and there was direct punishment for that. The there was a direct intervention uh, which uh, doesn't need much critical thinking in seeing as a, as a direct intervention of uh, of state power into uh, academic freedom and and, and free speech the much beloved free speech and um and there was and there was a massive massive consequence on these especially in connection to claims for equality diversity and inclusion which again uh and sorry anima i keep echoing your points but again this is we know we are aware of the ambivalences and the tensions within new liberal uh, universities but nevertheless there are constant attacks of the minimal incremental gains that are being made painstakingly through time. So we need to be aware also and call out these things again with, uh, you know, holding together the fact that again, being able to, to say it in this space might, might carry consequences, but has this importance because other people might, might, might echo that, might amplify that, might engage with these issues. Um, so that's, Paul, I think, can add to this. Yeah, and I'll just kind of quickly add, I, you know, agree, um, you know, with what was said, the sort of being caught between, you know, two different things. You know, I, I think with, um, you know, regards to a lot of the efforts uh, that, you know, that Chen mentioned in the question, whether it's, you know, DEI or social justice or JEDI or, or uh, I mean, I would even, you know, probably include, uh, intersectionality in there as well. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of, you know, effort being put forth, you know, that, that means well, but ends up being co-opted, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, and then also, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of, uh, you know, Western academics and perhaps particularly in the social sciences, perhaps have a little bit too much faith in terms of, you know, the purpose of, of universities as mover, movers of progress. And I would argue that that's not necessarily their function, right? I mean, despite everything that gets said, you know, perhaps by the right wing, um, you know, or others, you know, within, within capitalism, you know, I, I think that there are very real limitations in terms of, you know, what universities are going to do. Um, and perhaps, you know, cynically, I know one of my colleagues kind of described DEI work as, you know, coming to understand just how much white supremacy a university will accept. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think that says a lot about, you know, some of those efforts and the, the limitations and the very real, you know, walls that we, we end up confronting, despite the fact that, you know, I think a lot of us um, you know, do care about that work. And so I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much, everybody. Feel like it. Everybody provides a lot of uh, things for all of us who are in the session for educators and or students or scholars to think about our, our position in academia, Western academia in particular. So let's move on to talk about sport, as all of us are somehow associated with the context of sport in different capacity examine it from different perspective um you know two years ago two years ago uh when russia invaded ukraine we see uh, a a large wave of reactions 
within the sport industry. When the uh, 2020, you know, uh, 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 reckoning with black uh, reckoning with the uh, anti-blackness racism happened on the street in the United States, we saw a lot of uh, sport organizations, uh, corporations of the sport industry also uh, came out to uh, quote unquote voice their support. Um, but in this case, since October the 7th, we see a different picture. We see uh, 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 athletes are being punished or being coerced to stay silent on this issue. And we also don't see uh, much of the uh, opening statement from those same sport organizations that issue their, uh, their, their positions on racism, so on and so forth. What does this tell us about the sport industry's commitment to social justice? Anybody have any thoughts? Feel free to share. I'd, I'd like to jump in here. Um, I was I really appreciate this question and um, the way that it it weaves together the moment in which um, in which sporting organizations said anything. Um, I was thinking about it along similar lines for universities. So. You know, you've probably all read the absolutely atrocious statements that engage in this kind of both sidesisms that comes that have come out of universities. Um, and then I was reflecting on this on this idea of okay, so what did they say, and when did they say anything about Black Lives Matter? And universities were largely silent, if I recall correctly, until the murder of um, of. Uh, Goodness, I'm blanking. Anyway, but it was like it was around that 2020 period when universities were suddenly like, hey, we have something to say. It, but this didn't start in 2020. <laughs> and that, that's the point that I'm trying to Yeah, George Floyd. Thank you. Um, it didn't start in 2020. Folks had been protesting and agitating forever. And, and there have been waves of it. Right. But it was almost as if the university waited until they couldn't say anything. Uh, they couldn't be silent anymore because there were too many other things at play and it was almost a placation. And I would argue that something similar is happening in sports because even as um, teams may have made all these statements, like athletes were engaged in activism with consequence, like Kaepernick remains um, unemployed within football. Megan Rapino was wildly um, um, harassed through the end of her career even as she led the U.S. to the um, to the World Cup last to the Women's World Cup last year, um, I'm thinking about Iniola Aluko, who is in the U.K. and how she was removed from um, the national team as part of her, you know, because she was speaking out against racism, and and I'm and then I'm thinking about the work I'm doing currently. I'm currently writing about women's um, football, um, what Americans call soccer. <laughs> um, uh, in Ghana, and in in as part of this research, I've spent the last few years in conversation with um, women who started the national team and have been playing, and I've learned so much about their fears about speaking out um, for different kinds of injustices that they experience. Right? It um, you know they fought really hard to build the, the women's football in the country. They spent a lot of time. Um, 
making sure that, that they have access to resources, et cetera, et cetera. And this is their livelihood. And there's an investment in the continuation of the sport. But there's also this recognition that they're dealing with patriarchy, that they're dealing with capital, capitalism, et cetera. And, and the, so the, the way that individuals and even collectives are having to navigate these institutions remind us of the extent to which institutions are typically on the side of power. Um, and so it, I guess there's this, you know, it, it's really, um, it's not surprising that um, an athlete would not feel free enough without jeopardizing their income to speak out on this issue right now. Everyone is being punished. Um, or if not like directly being punished, enough examples are being made that folks are afraid. And so I, I, I hope that kind of being able to recognize how these institutions um, ensure our silence, we find ways of being in solidarity and speaking out. Um, it's it's hard to say like they can't fire all of us, they can try. <laughs> um, but you know, what in what ways might we even support athletes in their activism around this? This is a question I think a lot about in the work that I'm doing, but it's a kind of a, a recognition that the landscape does not necessarily allow for resistance, in, which makes sense um, in the way that we would want it to. Uh, I could, if I could just add, these are great points made by uh, Anima, but and if I could just add, the way to talk about this for me in terms of uh, its connection with sport is is it's the way that social justice movements, social justice movements, when we're talking about the way that um, our institutions deal with it, are always contingent on their relationship to capital and their relationship to accumulation. And we saw that so well with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, as messages got watered down and watered down until, and my my kind of lasting memory of this was the, frankly, at certain times, ridiculous slogans that were put on the back of NBA players as they participated in the bubble. Again, largely Black workforce being forced and being asked to uh, participate in a closed bubble environment uh, in order to ensure that the NBA's profits stayed afloat, uh, while giving them the sort of cookie of allowing them to have um, only a preset number of slogans put on their backs again um nothing that they, they couldn't cross certain lines black lives matter was I, I think the the most kind of radical um slogan that they were allowed and, and i bring this up again to state that this this um genocide has made clear that sport and and lots of institutions even our higher education institutions uh, are willing to engage with these uh pro-justice movements only insofar as they don't uh conflict with their goals regarding capital and power. And when the question is, yeah, when the question becomes one of supporting those closest to harm and supporting uh, oppressed peoples in the global South and elsewhere versus ensuring that their institutions remain funded and remain um, supported by large business owners, uh, wealthy investors and philanthropists, people of that nature, these institutions consistently and always, especially in the West, will choose those powerful people and those powerful institutions. So I try to teach that my students laugh at, and I'm, I'm laughing myself, that I usually have like a 30 minute kind of uh, max before I mention the word capitalism somewhere in my lecture, right? No matter what we're talking about, because it is the structure 
that influences and structures, for lack of a better word, the rest of our sports system and the rest of our, our cultural institutions, our universities, et cetera. And it becomes especially clear in moments like this when the so-called values uh, that these institutions hold come into direct conflict with capital accumulation and the maintenance of power. So it, it's, it becomes a perfect test case in a way to talk about with students when you're trying to explain these concepts in a real world situation. Um, just, oh, sorry, Nicola, do you want to go next? Okay. So I agree with everything Anima and um, Daniel have just said. So I just want to say something quickly in that I am so frustrated with sports organizations, period. Um, I'm so sick of the performative element of what they do for the reasons that Daniel and Nima have outlined. Um, and it's so hypocritical and the double standards. And I think Chen said it in his um, introduction to the question that sports, you know, governing bodies jump on the bandwagon. And when the Ukraine invasion happened, you know, there was um, lots of uh, protest and banners and signs and imagery to support that. But then, you know, in terms of um, what's going on now with Palestine, Israel, there seems to be a sudden silence, but not even a silence, punitive action taken against athletes um, and fans. So, you know, football players in Europe who um, have spoken out have been penalised. Fans who have um, displayed colours of the Palestinian flag and um had banners up at matches, you know, the football governing bodies have told them to stop. Otherwise, they could be, you know, ostracised from football matches. But, you know, I love the fans, especially like this group called the Glasgow um, Football Club fans, where regardless of what somebody in authority is telling them, they go out week in, week out, and they just have, you know, flags all across the stadium. And I just think, oh... Thank God that there's some subversive people out there. Come on, you rebels. I love you. Keep going. Because, you know, I, it's just so important that, you know, sports are this global platform and they can do something. And I think that's why a lot of the work of the BDS movement, I'm not very well versed in um, the boycott um sanctions and divestment movement others might know more than I do I know for example Heather Sykes has spoken about this previously and you know I think we there's still a lot to learn about this but there's been a call to boycott um, the Summer Olympics that are happening this summer in Paris and I know that lots of um, sports organizations across the nations are now signing up to that so people can read about that more if they go to the BDS website and even the forthcoming hockey championships in America, I think these championships are happening. I'm so like ignorant of sports outside of the UK, sorry. But I think even in the National Ice Hockey League championships, there's been a call to, you know, um, boycott that or to use that as a way to um, activate around these issues. And so whilst I'm frustrated no end with governing bodies and institutions and organisations, I think, you know, everyday actors and fans give me hope. I'm, I'm glad that, I, that Artie went before me uh, because I, I, I do agree, I completely agree with what uh, you just said. And uh, we have been kind of eviscerating very well the, the political economy of higher education 
and sport. We know we know it very well. Uh, but I think it's also important to remember that the sport doesn't just happen within the, the, the confines of, of late capitalist economy, uh, as education doesn't happen within the confines of university. So um, and there are kind of in between or hybrid spaces uh, 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 practices that kind of uh, allow some maneuver to to convey some points that are uh, simply unspeakable in other in other domains. And I think Arti made a very brilliant examples about fans. Um, I'm not big on football fandom. There are people who are much more versed, but I've been really much following with an, an increasing interest, the, 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 the tweets and photos of uh, fans across different contexts, including Israel, uh, showing their, um, their opposition to this, uh, to this genocide in act. And I, and I guess it's a point to remember, uh, that the conversation we are having here is about, it's not about taking a side, it's about really being able to frame a problem in a way that is not allowed to be framed in other, in other domains. And I think again, sport, if we forget for a moment that some messages can are only legitimated when uh, you know national governing bodies, international federation think it's safe to do so or sanitize it enough so that they can rebrand it, then I think we can explore some possibilities uh, uh, that are happening, that are actually existing possibilities of the ways in which um, some of these messages are being are happening, are taking place now as we speak in stadiums, uh, in, um, in, in, in contexts that are not within the confines of sport with a big S. So that, I guess that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what, um, you know, everybody said here so far as well. Um, you know, I think the only thing that I'll, I'll add, um, and I think this gets back a little bit to the to the last question as well is, you know, understanding that, you know, these institutions, you know, these, you know, international governing bodies of sport and, you know, larger, whether it's the NFL, NBA, I mean, these are Western institutions for Western institutions, uh, for Western nations, uh, for capitalism, right? And so, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, for me as as an academic, um, you know, I, I guess I would challenge us to sort of deepen our analyses to these kinds of things. Uh, I'm sure like a lot of you all, you know, I've read <laughs> enough books and enough articles, you know, with very nice critiques of these institutions. And then at the end, you know, it's this kind of very blase policy recommendation. And, you know, it's not that, you know, policy doesn't have a, a time or place, um, you know, but I, I think that there's a, a way to sort of, you know, push ourselves, you know, a little bit more into, you know, more fundamental material critique of, you know, who, you know, who do these institutions, who are they meant to serve? Who are they serving? You know, I you know, was watching uh, the, the last presentation last week, you know, and I, I think even there, there's a very kind of clear divide in terms of, you know, what, what Chen mentioned with Russian athletes versus even, you know, what happened with eventually with South Africa being barred from international competition. I mean, you know, South Africa, it took a lot of effort. It took a lot of time just to come around to a very basic conclusion. Whereas, you know, when the reverse happens, right, with Russia, it was just immediate, right? And so, you know, you know, there's a reflection there of, you know, what these Western interests, what they're trying to push, how they're trying to punish, 
uh, you know, various nations, uh, who they like and who they don't like, right? And so, you know, we know South African government supported by the United States and Israel right up until the very end, right? And so, you know, sanctioning South Africa, I mean, that took, you know, what, decades, right, of, of effort uh, to even get to to that point when it was clear, of course, what South Africa was, you know, an apartheid state. Uh, and so, um, so yeah, I, I'll, I'll leave it there. I mean, I, I think that there's a way to to sort of not be surprised uh, with what these these institutions do and and how they act. Um, you know, that I think can help us. You know, perhaps draw draw stronger conclusions or you know different ways to to address or uh, challenge them in different ways. Thank you, everybody. Um... I guess you know those those three questions are the primary questions we have prepared for everyone. But uh, I guess before we move on to the Q and A section, uh, Dan has generally generously offered to uh, respond to some of the earlier questions raised in the comments. So Dan, please go ahead and address those questions. I have a question in relation to how, as academics, we best highlight Palestinian physical cultures and their enduring lives. Off the topic, I think of surfing in Gaza, skateboarding in Kalia, and park parkour in Nablus. Do we use these examples as exemplars of resistance to colonial violence and the right to play by UNESCO? Or do we highlight the more top-down initiatives such as Palestinian team as the Asian Games? What do the panel think are the best ways of highlighting Palestinian issues through a sporting lens? Anybody? We can quickly jump in and, and say first thanks for the great question. And um, I personally think there's no best way. It's just the, the way that you, you, you feel, uh, you feel uh, or people or folks feel closer, feel uh, resonate with their uh with what they do with what they're interested in uh in addressing and uh and i guess um, there are many ways you mentioned great examples uh other things that are happening and we know just a, a portion of it uh, there is a there's a group of um paracyclists in gaza training right now in gaza they are called gaza sunbirds they organize uh, even um solidarity rights in other parts of the world uh, as we speak um and again it's really it really depends on 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 the angle they want to take and i guess the point is to make sure that these perspectives are engaged and are uh, not just a point of interpretation by uh, the starting point for a conversation that kind of informs conversation over here as well kind of uh, don't just apply to the specific context that's what i will say on this if I can um, follow up on that, um, thank you for the question. I, I really love it. Um, and it's making me remember why I love studying sports so much because of how much they can call attention to so many things. In um, just earlier, Munene had was talking about um, how the extent to which we're when we look at sporting institutions, we can really see their uh, 
alliance to power and capital. And that and that's such an important thing to be able to call attention to. For me personally, as a sports scholar, I'm really interested in the meso level of really thinking about the individual relationships and those sorts of things. And to Nicholas' um, response about the para-athletes, it's like, you know, right now we're counting. I learned at the last panel about... Um, about how they've introduced this new term because now they're counting the people without missing limbs, right? And sports can be such um, a generative way to think about the the violence of war and and you know what it means that new athletes are being created um, as a result of this attempt at genocide. And so I I don't think there's a best way, but I do think that as scholars engaging with these, like really always coming back to both the, I think one of the things that's so helpful is how empowering it can be, because sometimes these things can just feel so dismal. Um, and yet there are opportunities to talk about that, like opportunity for community, for individual empowerment, for accomplishment. And also to think about the broader structures within which these things are going on and how folks can um, resist or even make sense of just simply make sense of where they exist in, in the world more generally. One other very small point, because Nicola and Anima really said it all, but just to connect the sort of two points that they made, I think the structures that that have created the situation that this kind of uh, physical activity and, and culture is needs to exist in and the way it's hamstrung is important the way that it offers as a space of resistance is important and as nicola said the way that we can think about um how this physical activity and culture in palestine and gaza on the west bank uh exists similarly in other colonized oppressed places but also the way that we can connect this to even our students potential um so social context, their experiences, um, and to to also exam to also kind of make the link between all kind of oppressed people and even just working class people a lot of the time to make those links where we actually have more in common with our brothers and sisters in the global south than perhaps we're made um, to believe a lot of the time. So I think that that can be helpful as well. If we have no more uh, responses, we will move on to the next question. The next discussion was in response to what the solution can be for this conflict and how Israelis could continue to live in a quote-unquote free Palestine. Okay, so my answer to this is really, again, like all of our work, none of it is happens in a vacuum. My, my answer is based on the, the things I've read and the people I've had conversations with. And, and my view of this is that, and this is also an answer to uh, Larry Sidney's question in the chat when he asked about solutions. Um and it's an important question. Uh, the reason I don't think we touched on solutions in our panel is because this is about solidarity with Palestine and this was about uh, our role as academics and that kind of thing. So it wasn't explicitly what this was about. But it's a very important question. Uh, Despina is asking and it's important for us to, to be able to talk about this in various spaces. How I see it, at least from what I read, is that when we talk about the uh, end of Israel or um, Israel not existing anymore, it doesn't mean people who live in Israel necessarily. It means that the state of Israel, the institution, the institution with the explicit goal of remaining a Jewish state, where the demographic problem is a constant uh, point of discussion in parliamentary meetings, where there's an explicit attempt and, and success so far at making this a Jewish-run, controlled, 
and majority state where there's rules about um, Jewish people like me who has no family members whatsoever in my uh, ancestral line from Palestine, yet I can get citizenship, Palestinians cannot. It's about removing that state apparatus. And the idea that uh, land back and the right of return for Palestinians means the death of all Jews or that Jews would be removed from that place. That is a, a Zionist talking point that is used to shut down conversation about a one-state solution where a Palestine would be free and a life of dignity would be allowed for all who live from the river to the sea. And we have to be explicit about that, that for me, at least a one-state solution where, again, a multicultural, multi-ethnic democracy exists where dignity and liberty for all that is the the norm, at least in other settler colonies, even right when. And I can't speak for the uh, indigenous Canadian and American perspective um, in extreme depth because it's not my area of expertise. But I will say that in conversations I've had with indigenous scholars, they have said that land back for them in this context means again not the removal of all settlers. I, I'm, I'm not going to be, I don't think, sent back to Poland or Russia or Romania or my family's from, but that the land and the reparations that are given and that is still that can happen even with the settler population still existing, just without the relations um, that they currently have with the dispossessed colonized people. So it's those relationships that have to not exist. It is the state power of Israel to uh, force and coerce a um, Jewish ethno state that cannot exist any longer. But the idea that Israeli people or people who live in what is now Israel settler people again are at risk of violence and at risk of um, expelling. It's again, it's a Zionist talking point meant to weaponize anti-Semitism, to weaponize this kind of fear of being expelled. And the, the, the horrific irony of it is that the fear of this kind of ethnic cleansing and genocide is used as the justification, the, the, the supposed fear, the hypothetical fear of this is used as justification for the ongoing, actual, real-time genocide of Palestinian people. So I, I hope that answers the question. Just to um, add to what Daniel said, I, I'm really scared that what happens next is not going to represent what people on the ground want. And it will be, you know, United Nations, America, Western Nations, Human Rights Watch, etc., who start dictating what they think should happen. And we know when that happens, sometimes what is really needed becomes obscured through this political imaginary um, and so, you know, I think in echoing everything that Daniel just said, I really hope there's a way for people in Palestine and Israel, but also, you know, um, the diasporic connections to people across spaces to have some sort of say in all this. And it's not just done through authoritarian means. I, I can just add a very little observation because most of all was already said by Dan. Um, and I guess the talking about solution at this moment is 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 very is very difficult to say to say the least. We are seeing one attempt of of of, of a solution right now, and this is devastating. Is a genocidal solution. So I think what we are what we what we can voice, what we can amplify, is the idea that there are uh, people, members of the Jewish community in and beyond Israel, that have increasingly called the premise based on the idea that Jewish community safety needs, necessitates displacement, domination, incarceration, and oppression and murder of Palestinians. And that's, that's, that could be one starting point for 
for uh, for for an knowledge in a way for to a different solution because the solution that we are seeing now has has having the implications that we see in front of our eyes and we are almost forced to 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 see with our eyes open with without the feeling to be able to do much about it and i think that's the only thing i want to say this is not a zero sum game that, that the affirmation of the right to to live of one people uh, implies the negation of the other it's completely the opposite is the recognition of what ashil member called the universal right to brief so that's I just very naively think that if we maybe start from looking differently at the premises of the way we are looking at this genocide unfolding, that different solutions might be inside. That's all I feel can say on this. Uh, and I'll just jump in quickly here. I wanted to just uh, reemphasize uh, what, what Daniel said. Uh, you know, I think when we talk about um, you know, decolonization uh, and those kinds of things, one of the... that argument always seems to come up of like, oh, well, you're just going to, you know, get rid of all of us or kill everybody. And, you know, in, in no point in history have the oppressed ever <laughs> tried to turn the tables like that. Um, and so, you know, I, I appreciate that that argument. Um, I, you know, I also, you know, in, in part, not because I don't have I, ideas on it, um, but I think, you know, for myself being located, uh, you know, in the United States, um, you know, really far be it for me to, to say what, what people should do or what their, you know, these, these struggles kind of, kind of turn out, you know, anything that comes out of this, this conflict, uh, you know, should certainly be driven by the Palestinians and what they want, uh, and what they want their futures to look like, um, you know, and I say that, you know, primarily because, you know, I, I think as perhaps particularly as academics, um, you know, we we kind of like to think we have solutions and we can, you know, say say this or that, uh, you know, for some some place that's, you know, halfway around the globe from where I am. Um, you know, but, you know, I kind of take a different tack that, you know, my primary struggle here is to dismantle U.S. imperialism, you know, um, you know, until we do that. Uh, you know, all these other contradictions, um, you know, are going to going to persist. Right. And so you know, my work isn't necessarily trying to say, you know, what country should do this or that. Uh, you know, my work here is to try to try to make sure that the United States stops intervening everywhere. Right? <laughs> I'll leave it there. Um, and I, I'm going to try to keep this brief, but I want to thank you for the question, because it speaks so directly to the anxiety that um, folks have have about this um, call for um, what Daniel so well articulated as a one state solution in which everyone in those lands can live freely. And it, it, it seems to me such a projection of the settler colonial imagination, right? That should we be able to create a pluralistic democracy um, all of a sudden, it means um, the extermination of, of of the Israeli people. I mean, it 
we almost everywhere else in the world has these pluralistic um, democratic systems. And when they don't, we see what it means for the oppression of other people. I'm really thinking about India right now. And, you know, they just um, unveiled this new temple and are really um, doing this work of instituting Hindu nationalism and the implications of that for Muslims and other religious minorities are so dire. And so I don't I don't see any um, kind of approach to this problem as one that re reproduces the Holocaust as because this is this is the um, this is what is being told to us. Right. If, if Palestinians are to be free, it means that we have to do all, all of these things that the world has said never again to. And I think it's important to ask the question in the way that you've asked it so that we can answer it in in this very clear way because otherwise there's this way in which we're just kind of talking around the problem while really facing a live attempt at genocide in this moment and so i appreciate the question i appreciate daniel your um initial response to it and all that has um gone up and 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 really to to rt and munini's point it's so important to speak to the people about what that can look like um because if if the un does it um you know we're still living with the consequences of of um anti-colonialism in africa right we're still living with the consequences of um these kind of land grabs and so we know that the world governing bodies do not necessarily provide solutions that are equitable and just. And we need to keep that in mind as we're kind of moving forward um, in this struggle as well. Thank you everybody for your thoughtful, informative, um, and I would say also uh, uh, enlightening response to, to that question. And uh, as we approaching the time of the session uh, allocated to the session. I would like to thank everybody for your attention to uh, and participation to this conversation, particularly thanking our uh, uh, speakers for, you know, taking the risk, being here, sharing the space with everybody. I wanted to end by saying that, you know, uh, quoting from um, US scholar Robin D.G. Kelly, when he mentioned that, political organizing and the organizing of solidarity. He said, political organizing is already difficult work within communities. And on the other hand, solidarities between people and movement is even more difficult. It's a contingent political project rather than some kind of naturally essential trans-historical alliance. Therefore, solidarity cannot be assumptive, but has to be built politically. So I encourage everybody to, uh, you know, sit with that and ground ourselves and thinking about, you know, the importance of continue to strengthen that solidarity. And uh, we also recognize the, the real risk of speaking out, but as, you know, one of my one of the students for justice in Palestine leader on this campus has always told the audience, whatever you are experiencing now, whatever danger or risks y'all are taking, it's not remotely comparable to what people in Gaza are suffering. So with that, I think we all hold our strength and power to continue 
in our own space. So thank you, everybody.